I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Listening to Cauldron, I'm your host Cullen. Today we have another whopper of a story for you, but first, some quick housekeeping. As always, check us out on the social media stuff. So just go to Facebook or Instagram and search Cauldron. Please rate and review on iTunes. Shout out to uh, Persons117 for the latest review. It's really nice of you. Thank you for doing that. I really do appreciate it. So anybody that, uh, if you have the ability to, go on iTunes and give us a rating. Also check out Patreon and become a producer for the show. A buck a month helps get research materials, production equipment, and show art. So also you get some cool rewards and access to different uh, interesting little kind of prizes and swag and stuff like that so definitely check that out just go to patreon.com and search uh forward slash cauldron so uh welcome aboard to our latest patreon producers that's methuselah and luke thank you very much for your support support it really does uh blow me away that that people are willing to uh, invest in me and invest in the show and and i really can't say uh i can't express how how deeply thankful I am. So, thank you for that. Let's get into the show. All right, so today we are going back 310 years to the plains of the southern Ukraine. Fresh off of a winter so cold that birds fell frozen out of the air, Charles Twelfth of Sweden put his kingdom on the line outside of a city called Poltava. In the U.S., uh, football, or American football, that is, is king, and everybody knows it. And where I'm from in New England, up here in Maine, there's really only one team that matters. That's the New England Patriots. For the last 20 years, the Patriots have been led by the man I believe to be the greatest football player, let alone QB, um, and maybe the most significant American team sports athlete of all time. He's pretty well-known, but if you don't know him, his name is Tom Brady, and he is a winner of the highest grade. I won't rattle off his numbers, which I do know by heart, even though I'm a grown man, Uh, but suffice it to say that since he started playing, it's pretty much a 50-50 shot that he'll be in the Super Bowl by the end of the season. Now, because the fun part of being a sports fan is in the debate or, you know, the argument, the bar debate, the conversation of who's better, what team's better, and all that, people still argue whether or not uh, there are better quarterbacks in his time or outside of his generation. I don't think that's an argument worth having, but if you were to, then the most regularly claimed quarterback uh, to be better than Tom Brady is Peyton Manning. 
Now, Manning had a cannon arm, a brilliant mind, and a stable, if slightly flappable, stature on the field. A contemporary to Brady, who played with more Hall of Famers but won only two rings to Brady's six, and still counting, uh, Manning is not particularly my favorite, but I can see where people are going with that argument. Uh, But the debate is not necessarily... Uh, or at least the b- debate that I don't like is uh, is who's better. I don't think that's a, exactly an interesting conversation. If you want the more physically gifted quarterback, it's probably Manning, but the proven winner is Brady. The debate I find interesting is that the if you were to start a team tomorrow and you could draft either one as a fresh-faced 19-year-old to begin your franchise, who are you going to pick? This really becomes a much larger conversation about goals and culture and mentality. And and somewhere in there is an argument to be made for both. Uh, You have someone incredibly talented, but when things are most critical, they might melt in someone like Manning. Or someone that has a little, uh, you know, a little less natural talent and pure skill, but learns and continually improves, and in the crucial moment might really rise to the occasion or shine, and that's, that's Brady. Well, today uh, we're, we're going to be talking about two people who I think really uh, kind of fall into those categories. I'm talking about Tom Brady and Peyton Manning right now, but it so easily could be uh, substituted for Charles Twelfth of Sweden and Peter the Great of Russia. Both of these brilliant men had incredible talents and were endowed with real, raw ability and talent. Charles was one of history's most gifted and capable generals in the mold of a Hannibal-type man, and, and he regularly, regularly was outnumbered but used ingenious tactics to win more often than he lost. Peter was given a bumbling, embarrassingly backward army, but he dragged it into the modern age with brute force. One of these men had the strength and size of a bear. The other, the heart and speed of a lion. As I run through the events that led to and then the Battle of Poltava itself, I want you to be thinking about this debate that we talked about. You are the king or queen on your deathbed. You will die tonight. Who would you want to take the reins of your kingdom? Charles the Young Lion or Peter the Great? After the collapse of the Teutonic Knights, the Baltic region and Eastern Europe were in pretty much in disarray. A power vacuum was left by the old order of crusading knights, and for some time no power emerged preeminent in the area. Out of the madness and horrible violence that was the Thirty Years' War emerged a lion in the north. Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden was one of the greatest commanders in history and clawed out a real empire for Sweden. Seemingly overnight, France, England, Spain, and the Netherlands had to acknowledge a new member to their elite club. After Gustavus's glorious death on the field, Sweden was set up well for the future. Large swaths of Denmark and Germany, as well as most of the Baltic region and east end of the Gulf of Finland, were under Swedish control. 
By the time of Charles XI, Sweden had been playing with the big boys for almost 75 years, and it had kept up. Using the inspired yet simple rota system, Sweden could field a large and well-equipped army for the population's size. The rota system gave the responsibility of educating, training, feeding, clothing, and caring for one soldier to a group of ten farmsteads. When at war, uh, the system would go on and on, and if a soldier was wounded or killed, the rota or the ten farms would then pick another man. This system ensured a, a real steady stream of men and also helped to kind of disperse the cost, both physically, um, economically, and emotionally. So every family wasn't losing one person out of it. It was 10 families losing one, which is, it was a really good system. And it worked so well that Sweden used a form of the system right into the 1900s. So what did the rota provide? The Swedish infantry of the day were extremely strong, sturdy men, and they were all tied to the land coming from these farmsteads and extremely willing to fight for their country. Often the rotas would see fathers passing their position in the military or the infantry on to the, uh, to the son, and so you have these generations of warrior farmers coming out of the the deep, dark woods of, of Sweden. It's, it's a fearsome image, and they, they made excellent, excellent soldiers. Religious and fatalistically brave, the Swedish infantry was famed for using speed and steel to make up for their lack of numbers. Armed with muskets, but preferring swords, the infantry was Sweden's strong foundation. The Swedish cavalry was more traditional, if no less formidable. Striking with sword and pistol, Swedish cavalry would present a blue-coated wave that would crash into enemies. And where the king went, his dedicated drabants followed. The king's bodyguard, or drabants, were hand-picked, schooled in the martial arts, and entirely made of officers. Fighting in the bloodiest sectors of battle and loyal to the king's every command, as we will see later, the Drabants suffered greatly. Of the 147 Drabants that fought in the Great Northern War, as this war would be called, only 14 lived. That is, I don't even know, I mean, that's uh, that's huge, huge, huge number of, of soldiers out of this one group that died in this war. So uh, the Drabants are the cavalry, the infantry is this fast-moving, extremely physical and, and kind of grab the enemy and get it done kind of group. But as for the artillery, there really isn't much to cover. Unfortunately for the Swedish at Poltava, artillery was not really part of the Swedish military doctrine. Sure, at a siege or under certain circumstances, they'd use cannon, but rarely did it play a role in their standard battle plans or how they liked to fight. Small caliber mobile units do pop up and are given uh, to the cavalry to kind of maneuver and, and have quick high-speed uh, artillery that's able to, to go with the cavalry. But any kind of large, uh, you know, large form battery or anything like that really doesn't pop up here. And Charles was not somebody who um, 
who, because he prized speed so much, he really saw the accompanying kit and weight of artillery as more of a hindrance than an aid. So when Charles XI dies and the army he left behind goes to his son, Charles XII inherits a lithe, sinewy, and ready-to-be-put-through-its-paces force. In the hands of a genius tactician, this army would really be most formidable. The Swedish army didn't have a very long time to wait for a good fight to find it. In 1697, Charles XI died and left a very young son as king. But before he died, Charles Sr. had made some Swedish nobles very mad. The, quote, reduction policy was Charles Sr.'s way of consolidating and reclaiming large tracts of land that he had loaned, or that had been loaned out to the nobility. The nobles saw this land as their own, but the king had only let them borrow it, and now Charles wanted the land back. This totally cut the knees out from under the Swedish nobility at home and abroad, and they weren't happy about it. One man, Johan Patkul, or Jan Patkul, took extreme exception and eventually found himself sentenced to death by Charles for his complaining and bitching about the loss of his land. Patkul fled for his life, and the best revenge that he could come up with was to dethrone the Swedish king. So Patkul went to his enemies, Russia, Poland, and Saxony, and Denmark. It's in these three countries, because Poland and Saxony at this point in time are uh, ruled by the same ruler, Augustus the Strong, and we'll get to that in a minute. But anyhow, Patkul goes to these three countries, and he found very like-minded, sympathetic men that wanted Sweden brought down a peg, or ten. To finish Pat Cool's story real quick, he would eventually find himself broken on the wheel and beheaded by Charles XII. But that's down the line and only of minor importance to our story. So let's get back to it. The critical thing is that now there are these three major countries surrounding Sweden that are all chatting and all finding that they really, really don't like Sweden. So Poland, Saxony is, like I said, under the King Augustus the Strong. And Augustus was not a huge fan of the Swedes for two reasons. One was the amount of land that the Swedish had surrounding Poland. And two was the constant fear of a Swedish strike south into the Polish heartland. The Danes didn't like Sweden because they wanted Sweden to become weaker so that their vast shared border with Norway would be safer. And uh, the and so the Danes at this point in time also owned Norway. So they have this massive shared border and the Danes really were not too keen on having a super strong Swedish army based right across the border. Also, the Swedes had trade in the Baltic pretty much on lockdown, which left a lot of the other Baltic countries, like the Danes, in kind of a crappy situation. And finally, you have Russia, who at this point uh, just kind of wanted to prove itself. Not even really remotely a primary power, Russia was to most European kingdoms an afterthought, if, if they thought about Russia at all. 
So Russia really, really had to win something and show itself to be a true power to be reckoned with. And this was a great opportunity. In 1698, King Frederick of Denmark signed a treaty with the Polish under Augustus. The next year, Peter of Russia signed on as well. The plan was sound and seemed perfect. Hit the smallish kingdom of Sweden from the east, the west, and the south. The tiny army of Sweden, led by its teenage king, would have no way of dealing with so, many, uh, so much pressure and so many attacks. They assumed he would sue for peace quickly or maybe even abdicate entirely. In fact, the late 20-something czar was banking on it. So it's really tough for me to wrap my head around the idea that at one point in its history, Russia was really no more than a barba barbaric backwater. Uh, what the, the Russians were dealing with at this point in time is they weren't that far removed from the Dark Ages, where by the 1690s, and I will continue to use the term Dark Ages, I know it's out of fashion and most historians don't like it anymore, but I do. I think it's very descriptive and it makes sense to me, so I'll continue to say the Dark Ages. But anyhow, so in the 1690s, Russia's really still not that far removed from what, uh, what the rest of Western Europe had been like almost 400 years, 300 years previously. And so all of that ends, though, with the rise of one of history's true innovators. Born in 1672, Peter would share the role of Tsar with his sickly brother Ivan for almost a decade. And the two of them weren't actually in power because they were under a regent, the, their half-sister Sophia. And Peter swore that he would uh, drag his new kingdom into the modern age, and he took power in 1696 from his sister. Peter at first took stock of the situation and set his goals. Trade in Russia was stagnant at best. There really wasn't much going on. They didn't have the entire continent like we think of now. So if you get a chance, I'll put some maps up there so you'll see what Russia looked like at this point and be able to kind of track the, the entire thing. So uh, Russia had no access to the sea, either in the Baltic or in the Black Sea. Diplomacy was also almost non-existent. And worst of all, in Peter's eyes, the army, navy, and industry of Russia was all criminally backwards to him. At 6'7", and with lively commanding green eyes, Peter found ruling quick to grasp, if not necessarily easy. Unrest, revolt, and the painful process of rebirth often meant that Peter had to be harsh. But he never stopped learning or embracing new ideas. Famously, he went incognito on a great walkabout through Europe, and while traveling through the West, Peter met King and Carpenter alike, engaging them on the nuts and bolts of Western ways. When he returned to Russia, he brought what he had learned. And man, he was a good learner. As a boy, he went from commanding toy soldiers to full toy regiments that would one day form the very core of his army. And Peter would in time totally overhaul Russia's army from the matchlock-wielding peasant rabble he was given at the beginning of the Great Northern War to a, uh, 
crisp fighting army. A corrupt and idle and cowardly force at first, the Russian army, through defeat and retooling, became formidable. Borrowing from the Swedes, Peter used a rota-like system to recruit. Then he went back to Europe, grabbing all the French, Prussian, and Italian officers he could get to lead his men. And with fresh new uniforms and the faster, more deadly flintlock musket, the Russian infantry suddenly seemed a bit more impressive, if not tested. A strong cavalry arm that was fleshed out with Cossacks gave Peter robust covering and striking force. As for artillery, Peter showed a far-seeing vision as opposed to his enemy Charles. Peter loved artillery and wanted as much as he could get. To hell with the cost and loss of speed, the excellent killing potential of a well-placed gun made up for all. Peter went so far as to give each regiment its own artillery unit. This gave the commanding officer the ability to apply direct fire where he needed it the most. Recognizing the importance of maneuverability, Peter even had some light horse-type artillery ride with his cavalry, maximizing their striking power. All this improvement was somewhat in the future, though. First, the Great Northern War and Charles XII had to teach Peter, the pupil, a lesson or two. At 14, Charles lost his father, and it seemed likely that the kingdom was bound for a long regency. Quickly became apparent, though, that Charles didn't play well with others and sure as shit didn't like others giving him orders. At 15 in 1698, he was declared king in a fiasco of a ceremony. Apparently, the crown slipped off his head, the archbishop dropped the sacred oils, and then the stubborn young king, like any teenage boy, chose not to do what he was told, and he refused to recite the traditional royal oath. The most telling of the whole circumstance, though, was that Charles actually took the crown from the archbishop's hand and placed it on his head himself, which broke with tradition and I'm sure gave a lot of the more religious nobility the shivers and goosebumps. And it also kind of gives you a little insight into exactly the kind of kid that you're dealing with. So now Sweden had a 15-year-old leading its armies and holding its fortunes in his pubescent hands. This perceived weakness is probably why the surrounding kingdoms really got into the idea of going against the power in the north in the first place. They had no way of knowing, however, that Charles would take to war like a fish to water. He would prove utterly fearless in battle, commanding from the front like a Scandinavian Caesar or an Alexander, and an eerie detachment in action, married to a blunt honesty and sprinkled with a dry humor, this was a mixture that his soldiers grew to love and adore. The laconic warrior was balanced with the characteristics of an ascetic, though. And off the field, Charles was considered, quote, gentle as a lamb, shy as a nun, end quote. Robert I. Frost, in his book, The Northern Wars, 1558 to 1721, goes on to say that, quote, his speech became brief, dry, 
and un- and understated, saved from being hopelessly cryptic by occasional glimmers of sympathy and wit. Honor and sanctity of one's word became his two cardinal principles. A king must put justice and honor ahead of everything. Once given, his word must be kept, end quote. Charles would go on to never drink or be married. Instead, he preferred to live always as if he was on campaign, which, honestly, for the most part, you know, the Great Northern War is almost 20 years, uh, 20 years long. He's in it for 18. He takes the kingdom at 15. He was almost always on campaign, so that kind of makes sense. Uh, JFC Fuller has another great quote about Charles. He says, Charles was knight-errant and berserker in one. He lived for war, loved its hardships and adventures even more than victory itself, and the more impossible the odds against him, the more eagerly he accepted them. Wrapped in an impenetrable reserve, his faith in himself was boundless and his power of self-deception unlimited. Nothing seemed to him to be beyond his reach. The numerical superiority of his enemy the strength of his position, the wariness of his troops, the lack of armament of or supplies, the uh, foundering roads, mud, rain, frost, and scorching sun appeared to him, but obstacles set in his path by providence to test his genius. Nothing perturbed him. Every danger and hazard beckoned him on, high-spirited but always under self-control, faithful to his word, and a considerate disciplinarian. From the moment he took the field, he became a legend to his men, an entendered vivant, which endowed him with a faith in his leadership that has never been surpassed. His fearlessness was phenomenal, his energy prodigious, and added to these qualities, he possessed so quick a tactical eye that one glance was sufficient to reveal to him the weakest point in his enemy's line or position which at once he attacked like a thunderbolt. Such was the boy king whose Baltic provinces, the self-indulgent Augustus and the boorish Peter over their wine cups had decided to filch and divided between themselves. End quote. Now, I know that's a long quote, but I think it really does a great job, first off, of showing you how good a writer J.F.C. Fuller is, so I can't recommend uh, picking up his books more, but also it gives you a great example of, or a great description of this young boy king and his, his traits, his personality, but also why his enemies might think it would be easy and quick to take from him uh, what was rightfully his. This uh, preference and dedication to the army did not, however, translate to him being a great ruler. His brilliant mind was honed for a particular trade, and that trade was war, not governing. Similar to Richard III, Charles spent most of his rule absent from the kingdom, and the laws and budgets he made or passed were all to bolster the war effort. As we will see, the war to come would rage for about, like I said, 20 years and become a hugely expensive burden on the Swedish subjects, But again, that's down the line. First, Charles will have to fend off the gathering wolves intent on tearing his kingdom apart.
with so many strong enemies striking from every direction, fending off these attacks was seemingly going to be a strategic nightmare. This is why the Allied Russians, Poles, and Danes felt pretty good about their odds of winning a swift, easy war. The Danes made the first move by pushing into the Holstein-Gotrop region, which was a ally of Sweden. This was in concert with Augustus the Strong, the elector of Saxony, king of the Poles, sending an army into Livonia, another province of Sweden's. The first strike uh, made by the two other countries gave the confidence uh, to, uh, gave confidence to Peter to join in the fight, and he declared war on Sweden in 1700. Now, for the first time, Charles XII showed his ability. The idea of, quote, quantity has a quality all its own, end quote, which has been attributed to pretty much everybody, but uh, I know that I've heard of Napoleon saying it, Churchill saying it, all sorts of people. Those are the usual suspects, by the way. Anytime there's a quote that nobody knows who said it, uh, usually you've got, well, that's a Churchill quote or a Napoleon quote, but I don't know. Anyhow, I've seen a bunch of different people saying that basically quantity has a quality all its own means that uh, if you throw a massive number of men at a particular job that might take specialists or need a spe special quality, the, if the sheer size of that mass of men will eventually get the job done. In Charles's case, we can kind of tweak this and instead say speed has a quantity all its own. The speed with which Charles moves makes his small army seem much larger. And, and in the future, you see this with Napoleon. You see it with, uh, well, not Napoleon all the time. At the beginning of his career, he moves with incredible speed, and it makes it seem like he's got a whole bunch of little armies, but he's really just dealing with the same size force that he always had. Uh, you see it with Robert E. Lee, who, again, has a much smaller army than his enemy, but using speed and deception, he makes it seem like it's much larger. So in Charles's case, he might be the best of all time, maybe other than Hannibal, of using speed to appear as though he's got a much larger army, or not even appear, but uh, to, to do the job of a much larger army. In a daring move, the Swedish fleet danced around the Danish fleet and met up with its nominal allies and co-religionists, the English and the Dutch fleets. With the de facto control of the Danish coast, the Swedes landed 10,000 men in Zealand. From there, the Swedish marched on Copenhagen and facing a blockade of his capital and country and a full court press on land, Frederick of Denmark signed the peace of Travendal. In five months, think about that, five months, Charles had knocked one of the other or one of the key threats in the alliance against him right off the board. With impressive speed for the time, again, we're going to keep saying this with Charles, speed, speed, speed. Uh, with impressive speed for the time, Charles swung his army back east to relieve the now besieged city of Riga. Hoping to rid Riga of its Saxon assailants, Charles heard that a Russian army was near the town of Narva in Estonia. Believing that the more difficult challenge was going to be the Saxons, which was probably correct, 
Charles halted and collected his army. With 10,500 men, he then headed towards Narva to get rid of the Russian army of 40,000 men and 140 cannon. In a brilliant victory that we will cover in a more in-depth episode in the future, I promise you, because it is super cool and very interesting, Sweden forced the Russians from the field, routing them, even though the Swedes were outnumbered four to one. Again, Charles used lightning speed strikes and fearlessness. In this uh, particular case, they struck at the enemy in the middle of a driving blizzard. The victory was complete and total and really just, it was an absolute butt-whipping that forced Peter and the Russians to really reassess their entire military. The Russian army was destroyed, and there were so many captives taken, and the Swedes had so few men that they couldn't even deal with it. So they just disarmed them and then turned them around and pointed them towards Moscow. The victory at Narva would prove a twofold disaster for Charles in a weird way, because he won this great victory, but it will haunt him in the future. He failed to follow up and drive into Russia, which allowed Peter's army to recover and eventually get the better of him. Had he moved on Moscow at this point, there would have been very little to stop him in the way of, uh, uh, of defensive force. So at the very least, he probably would have forced Peter to the bargaining table. It's likely that the reason he didn't follow the Russian army was that he was afraid of a large Saxon pole army in his rear area. But still, for such a confident gambler of a general, this seems like a very large missed opportunity. The other disaster that comes out of this victory at Narva was that Charles now had an unshakable belief that the Russian soldiers were contemptible beasts. He would not be, uh, he would not be shaken from this idea that the Swedish infantry was infinitely better than any Russian force. And as we will see, this kind of mentality gets him into a, a very, very tight spot later on down the line. So with the Danes out and the Russians licking their wounds, Charles is able to give his full attention to the Saxon Poles. In 1701, he frees up Riga from its siege and follows the fleeing enemy to Poland. Charles proceeded to flash all over Poland, winning stunning victory after stunning victory. Like at Narva, speed and tactical prowess made up for the Swedish lack in numbers. By May 1702, the Swedish were in Warsaw by August in Krakow. Major victories at Klitzau and Poltusk led to the 1703 dethroning of Augustus the Strong of Poland. Charles attempted to prop up a puppet named Stanislaw, but the Poles proved very fickle subjects. While Charles dealt with ordering the new Poland, Peter was retooling and organizing his disgraced army. New weapons, doctrine, and uniforms like we talked about earlier. He also got more officers from all over Europe. And in 1702, Peter took his first step towards modern Russia. In January that year, he invaded the province of Ingria and followed this up in 1703 by the founding of the most Romanov of cities, 
St. Petersburg. As a way of genuinely washing away the shame of Narva, Peter captured Narva again in 1704 and slaughtered the garrison after they refused to surrender. Recognizing the growing danger near his home base in the Baltics, Charles was forced to deal with Augustus the Strong's large army first. In 1706, Charles seemingly walked into a trap by positioning his force between a Polish and Russian army. Neither Allied army coordinated an attack, though, and Charles was able to uh, wiggle free, and his right-hand general, Reinskold, who we'll talk about later, eventually does beat Augustus's Poles at Fraustadt. Charles then shifted his attention from the east to the west, and Saxony in particular. With his home and power base threatened, Augustus, the elector of Saxony and former king of Poland, sued for peace, and in the process, he recognized Charles, Charles's puppet Stanislaw as the king of Poland. With the collapse of the coalition, Charles found himself master of Central Europe. He had moved across vast distances with unnerving speed. He had used tricks and talent to outwit and outfight far superior numbers. Charles was a meteoric figure, and the rest of Europe sat up to look and watch and see what he was going to do next. The uh, Dutch, Austrians, and English were wary of the young warrior, and they thought that if he went unchecked, he might be around for decades running circles around their armies. So, as a way to take kind of a sounding or gauge the Swedish king's mood and character, one of the other great captains of the age was sent to interview him. The Duke of Marlborough, the famous general from uh, England, was sent to Altrenstadt. Sorry, I'm going to butcher some of these names. I know it. According to Robert K. Massey in his immersive bio of Peter the Great, this is one of the key sources I used in this episode. It is a freaking awesome biography. Uh, very interesting, full of detail, a little long, but still super, super great book. Uh, and he says, quote, At this meeting, which took place in April 1707, the Duke concluded that the Swedish presence in Germany posed no threat and that Charles had no intention of upsetting the balance of Catholic and Protestant powers allied against Louis of France. At the conclusion of this meeting between two of the greatest commanders in history, Marlborough stated his wish to, quote, serve in some campaign under so great a campaigner as the Swedish king so that I might learn what I yet want to know in the art of war, end quote. Charles himself was not quite so impressed with the Duke, saying afterwards that he thought Marlborough overdressed for a soldier and his language a bit overdone, end quote. So a less than impressed Charles had no mind for war with the other European powers anyways. He really only had a mind for war with one country and the one man that embodied that country, Peter the Great. Charles of Sweden was intent on finishing a war that he had not started, 
But Peter of Russia at this point seems to have been a little sorry to be involved, and he had had enough. Peter wanted to come to some kind of peace accord, but Charles believed, quote, I have resolved never to start an unjust war, but never end a legitimate one except by defeating my enemies, end quote. And with that in mind, he set up a campaign into Russia to settle the matter. Charles had a deceptively large army. I, I say it's deceptive because it was really dispersed. He had about 12,000 men holding Riga in the surrounding area. He had 14,000 in Finland in that area, and another 10,000 just kind of sprinkled around in various provinces. So really, under his direct command, and that he actually had that were tangible, Charles only had about 40,000 men. In 1707, Charles moved through a devastated Poland to the Russian border. Now, uh, Poland is devastated because he had spent the last few years traipsing around with his army and campaigning in Poland, both he and Russia and the Poles and the Saxons had been moving around and burning villages and stealing food and killing people. So Poland w was really in bad shape. And unfortunately for Poland, throughout history, that seems to be the case. Uh, once he reaches the border with Russia, Charles pauses and trains his men. And he's hoping that the Rasputitsa season is short. Now, this is the fall going into winter. And the Rasputitsa is the famous mud season in Russia, and it turns the roads into rivers of mud that's thigh high in places and completely impassable. So while that's happening, he's waiting for the frost to come, which will eventually harden the roads again and make action and you know mobility something that the Swedish army is once more capable of. As any invader of Russia will attest, if they survive... Russia is notoriously challenging to maneuver across. Distances in Russia are hard, if not impossible, to imagine. And so for a man of speed, war became frustrating in Russia for Charles. The emptiness is cut with rivers, each needing to be crossed along the way. And Charles had to wait for the ice to form in many cases just to get his men across these rivers. And, and some t sometimes what they would do is they would throw uh, pieces of wood and timber and straw into the rivers and lakes and ponds that they had to cross. And then once that froze overnight, the, the wood and straw would work to kind of strengthen that ice so that his army could cross. It's a very clever idea. I'd never seen that or read about it, and uh, I thought that was interesting. And so I want to share it with you. Um, okay, so in a move that be uh, Basil Lidelhart or Littlehart, I've always called him Littlehart, but I've heard recently Lidelhart. Um, anyhow, in a move that he would have loved, which he was all about the... Um, he was all about the indirect approach. Charles used the never-before-traversed Mazovin Forest as his main line of invasion into Russia. Emerging on the Lithuanian-Russian plains in January of 1708, Charles was a mere 10 days from Moscow. Hunkering down again for the spring mud season to pass, Charles ordered his far-flung forces to converge on his main body. The final blow, he hoped, was to be struck in the summer campaign season. Peter, never one to be inactive, had given Charles a contrary choice. By holding the Baltic area that he had taken, 
Peter gave Charles the decision of either beating the small threat close to his home base and allow Peter in Moscow to build up, or go deeper into Russia and leave a threat in his rear. Charles picked the latter, believing that the Baltics would be uh, would be able to wait and, and that would be nothing more than a mop-up after the main Russian force was destroyed. And that's when Peter springs the age-old Russian trap. Trading space for time and destroying every bit of food in the theater, Peter and his armies fell back on their interior lines which means that Charles's lines were stretching and stretching and stretching, eventually going to break. So as Peter is playing his uh, Russian card of, of trading space for time and destroying food, Charles's brilliance and swiftness was able to counter him for a, a, a little bit. Time and again through the spring and summer, Swedish forces turned Russian flanks or outmaneuvered them in marches. Crossing river after river and backing larger army after larger army down, Charles's confidence must have been sky high. Seeing how inept the Russians were allowed Charles to live even deeper in that fantasy about Russian weakness and Swedish superiority. He stopped at the city of Mogilev and waited for his baggage and reinforcements under General Lewenhaupt to uh, join him there. Now, unbeknownst to Charles, Lewenhaupt got a late start in the summer, and the trip was going to be a lot longer than was anticipated. In fact, Lewenhaupt, at the point that uh, Charles is in Mogilev, Lewenhaupt is a whopping 250 miles away. It's also while in camp at Mogilev that fate brings history one of its most romantic figures and probably one of the most fateful decisions of, uh, of Charles's life. An embassy from Hetman Ivan Mezepa came to Charles and was begging for help. Mezepa, who would be immortalized by Lord Byron, was a Cossack, and he was schooled by Jesuits and a page to the Polish king himself. Now, uh, Mezepa joined the Cossacks in 1687. He rose to leader status after many escapades in the field and in the bedroom, and he was apparently very dark and handsome and was something of a steppe Casanova. Like most Cossack groups, he was in and out of favor with the ruling Russians, and at this point in our story, he was out. Telling Charles he could bring him a 100,000 fearsome warriors on horseback, or, I've seen other sources say 30,000, Mezepa wanted to ally with the Swede. All Mezepa wanted was the Ukraine for himself. Imagining a massive army of mobile fighters added to his implacable infantry, not to mention the breadbasket of the Ukraine, Charles decided to help the Hetman secure his land. In late summer, Charles broke up camp and one more time tried to draw the Russians into a fight, but no dice. Then he got an urgent message requesting aid from Mezepa, who feared that Peter the Great would sniff out his ruse and probably punish his group of Cossacks and act first. Charles, ever the man of his word and of action, set out to help his new ally. As J.F.C. Fuller put it, quote, not only was Charles a man of impulse who never worked to a plan, 
But as Napoleon points out, in this campaign, he violated the principles of war. He failed to concentrate his forces. He abandoned his line of operation, cut himself off from his base, and made a flank march in face of his enemy's army. Outside an offensive idea, Charles had no plan, and in spite of the urgency of Mezepa's situation, not to wait for Lewenhaupt was an act of strategic insanity. From now onward, Charles's actions increasingly show that either his faith in himself or his contempt for his enemy, or both combined, had unbalanced his mind. End quote. This unbalanced mind would prove to be his ultimate undoing. A shocking lack of communication was the beginning of the end for the Swedes. Lewin hopped with all the baggage and men, knew nothing of the new plan to go to the Ukraine. Now his journey was hundreds of miles longer, and along the way he had to cross multiple rivers. An already slow-moving group was reduced to a snail's pace. At one of those river crossings at a place called Lesnaya, the Tsar Peter himself showed up. Striking the stretched and exhausted Swedes with 15,000 men, Peter won a very comfortable victory. All of Charles's fresh supplies and artillery was abandoned and claimed by the Russians. Of the 12,000 men Lewenhaupt had left with in June, he stumbled into Charles's camp in October with barely 6,000 ragged and wild men. Charles was dished a nasty blow, receiving only half the hoped-for reinforcements. Well, he was about to get another one. Mezepah was full of it. Peter had, in fact, sniffed out the duplicitous Cossack and let his brilliant cavalry general Menshikov ravage Mezepah's land. With his group of Cossacks under attack from other Cossacks and the Russians, Mezepah was only able to bring Charles 5,000 soldiers. Not nearly enough to make the trip worth the trouble. Now the Swedish army found itself in enemy territory with no hope of reinforcements anytime soon. Then the icing on the cake came. The coldest winter in living memory struck. Food collection or foraging became utterly impossible and downright deadly. All of Europe was in a polar blast. The Rhone River froze, the canals of Venice iced over. Dragoon horsemen froze in the saddle, barrels of booze reportedly turned to ice cubes, and birds fell from the sky stone frozen. A horrifying scene of daily life comes from Peter Englund's book, The Battle That Shook Europe. He says, quote, If they failed to find some cranny in the ground, the men had to stand outside in the extreme cold under the bare skies. People died in droves on the streets. The bodies of hundreds of frozen soldiers, servants, wives, and children were collected up each morning, and all day sleds loaded with rigid corpses were driven off to be hidden in some hillside cavity. The field surgeon 
worked round the clock, barrels filled with amputated limbs taken from victims of frostbite, end quote. On top of this plague-like winter, the Russians were ever-present. Harrying and harassing the Swedish camp, all winter Russian forces made like the battle was about to begin. Then the Swedes prepped for a fight and nothing happened. Each time the starving, scared Swedish soldiers had to exert energy that they didn't have and wouldn't recover, readying for a battle that never materialized. At one point, Charles struck out in frustration and sent his men out of the safety of the camp to chase down the melting away Russians. When the Swedes reached the towns, uh, town that the Russians were in, they found nothing but burning rubble. The Russians had set a trap, and now the Swedes had nothing to shelter in for the night and were too far to trek back to the safety of the camp. That night must have been deadly, harrowing, miserable, and horrifying. Of the 40,000 men that Charles had started with in October 1708, by the end of that winter, he was able to field less than 25,000 in 1709 as the spring came about. With 2,250 sick or wounded, his actual numbers were somewhat in the, or somewhere in the 23,000 range. Charles had cut his own force in half, fighting mostly disease, cold, privation, and attrition. Charles was, however, not yet beaten. There had been a few small victories before the spring thaw that had worked to lift the men's spirits, and there was always the tremendous quality difference between Swedish and Russian soldiery, at least in Charles's mind. This alone allowed him to refuse to see the truth of his situation, and in fact, he was settled on ending the war in the summer of 1709. For all intents and purposes, it did end in 1709, just not the way Charles might have hoped. Charles's plan to bring the war to a conclusion in 1709 started with the whole, uh, the age-old enemy of my enemy is my friend idea. An embassy was sent to both the Ottomans and the rulers of the Crimean in the hopes that they would join the fight. If he could get fresh troops from either of these, or at the very least, goad them into opening new fronts from the southern border, uh, the Russians would be forced to deal with a whole bunch of, uh, of different attacks coming at once. As a way to show his potential allies his seriousness, Charles moved his army further south and into the area around the small town of Poltava. Poltava is near the Volska River, about 200 miles from Kiev. The town sits on a plateau where the plains of Central Asia meet the thick woods and river valleys of Eastern Europe. The land around the town was cut up by ravines and sprinkled with forests and fields. A remote region, Poltava was still relatively well-traveled through as it was near the, uh, the Kiev and Kharkov road. It had even seen its fair share of warfare. In 1399, Tamerlane, or Timur the Lame, had smashed a Lithuanian army nearby. 
In the spring of 1709, when Charles arrived, the defenses of the town were stronger than he anticipated, with about 4,000 men handling the walls and 90 cannon covering the approaches. Strangely for a general that prized speed and action, it's at this point in his life that Charles decided to become a siege expert. The numbers needed to take a defended position like Poltava ideally range around, you want to have about three or five to one attacker to defender ratio. Ten to one is ideal. Uh, Charles barely had enough, but his minimal artillery was the real issue. Without it, his men would have to storm the defenses all the while under heavy fire from those 90 cannons. Regardless, Charles ordered siege lines dug, and on May 1st, his meager bombardment began. After six weeks of a weak siege, the Swedes had little to show for their efforts. Ammunition was critically low. The defenders, though also low on ammo, were still on the walls, and the Russian army under Menshikov, Peter's fantastic cavalry commander, was camped nearby. In June, Peter himself arrived, building the Russian army up with reinforcements, and again, Charles found his army under constant harassment from the Russians. Foraging became more and more difficult. While trying to deal with how to feed his army, Charles lost a march to the Russians. Fainting like they were moving southwards, the main Russian army actually moved north of the town of Poltava and north of the Swedish lines. The new position was six miles north and secure and on the Swedish flank. Charles, however, was skeptical at the news of the Russian bait-and-switch. He really did think the Russian force had moved south. So he wanted to prove it to himself, and so he rode up to scout. As a lead uh, from the front kind of guy, Charles had scouted the enemy positions hundreds of times in his life. This time would be no different, or so he thought. On June 17th, while within musket range, but no closer than his normal position, Charles was struck in the foot. This lone musket ball tore through his left foot, traveling the entire length from heel to toes. For three hours, Charles remained on his horse, still scouting, even though he was through, or he was suffering through unimaginable, excruciating pain. And he didn't let on that the, the pain was, in, uh, was, was overwhelming because he was afraid that his men would hear about it and morale would shrivel. With blood literally leaking from his now ventilated boot, Charles eventually swooned and had to be physically removed from his horse. This wound was particularly nasty and made standing or even riding impossible for Charles. By no means a mortal blow to the young lion, it was, however, a kill shot to his army. Blood loss and shock threw Charles into a three-day fever that broke on June 22nd. The news he woke to was terrible. His Polish puppet was not going to make it to the fight, and neither the Ottomans nor the Crimeans would help. While Charles was puzzling out how to keep his army alive, Peter was planning its destruction. Hearing of Charles's wounding, Peter decided this is where the fight to the end would be, and no better time than now.
The memory of Narva stuck, though, so Peter was set on a defensive effort. Between the Russian position and the Swedish siege lines, there was a thick wood called the Yekovetsky. A deep gully ran through the woods, making it a robust defensive bulwark for the Russians. To the north was another dense forest, also impassable. And now between these two forests was a broad, flat plain that led directly to the main Russian camp. So, essentially, Peter was giving Charles a clear avenue of attack. To entice the Swedes, Peter had the camp tricked out with a deep ditch and drawbridges, making it appear as though this was someplace he wanted to stay, making it all the more a nice shiny objective and a shiny target for the young lion to strike at. Peter then had his men build a series of redoubts, which is essentially, uh, redoubts are small forts meant more to slow the enemy and or hold a, uh, a field position, so like a particularly important part of a battlefield. Not really, it's not meant to be there forever necessarily or meant to hold a huge force, but just there to kind of stake a claim on a piece of land. So these redoubts stretch from one end of the plain to the other in a T formation. The stem of the T was pointed towards the opening of the plain. So the stem or the base of the T was facing the Swedes. Each redoubt was about 150 yards from the other and was made of sturdy logs and had firing windows on all sides for their cannon. And there was only one way to get to Peter and his army, and now it was to go through these forts. Charles had a choice. He could pack up and leave, hope for another shot at Peter at a later date, or he could trust to Swedish ferocity in battle and crappy Russian discipline. Seeing that the Russian camp was tucked up against a river with only one escape, Charles surmised that a lightning attack would lead to a panic, that the rout would turn into a massacre as the Russians were pushed into the river. The plan was simple but tricky. Break into the open plain behind the redoubts by rushing past them, not even really engaging them, and then a full-scale, concentrated, quick attack on a single point in the Russian army with massive, overwhelming Swedish ferocity and force. The Swedish cavalry would sweep behind the redoubts and brush the Russian cavalry away, opening a straight shot for the infantry. Then they were to swing north and cut off the Russian retreat while the infantry herded the Russians into the river. As the saying goes, quote, the best laid plans never survive first contact with the enemy, end quote. Sunday, June 27th, the Swedish moved into launch positions around 11 p.m. 600 yards from the leading Russian redoubts, the Swedish could see the Russian soldiers working. Tired, battered, on the edge of, of exhaustion, the Swedish men took heart as their king was carried around on his litter. Recognizing his current state made command impossible, Charles gave the reins of control to his general, Reinskold. 
This was his best option, but the lack of top command experience was notice- noticeable from the start. The infantry was forced to wait to take launch positions as the cavalry slowly formed up. Even worse than the disorganization was a communication blackout. Reinskold failed to alert Lewenhaupt and the other generals of his full plan. Between Reinskold and Lewenhaupt, there was a very, very deep-rooted dislike and rivalry, but that's by no means an excuse. Hours before the battle that would decide the fate of their nation, petty squabbles kept them from communicating, which, if you really break it down and think about it, that is absolutely insane. But it's so human, it's crazy. I mean, it's... Uh, I would say, on the one hand, it seems almost uh, fictional, like it couldn't have been real. And then on the other hand, it sounds exactly right. Uh, Of course, at the end of the day, this failure of communication, of clear, concise orders, was really Charles's fault. Even though he wasn't giving command from the back of a horse or in the front of the line, he should have delivered uh, written, clear, concise orders that related what he expected of all of his generals. Once the muddled orders were sent around and the forces were all teed up, Reinskold formed his infantry into five columns. The Russian readouts were in that T formation, again with the stem or the long base facing the Swedes. And Reinskold was going to split his army in the face of the enemy fire, which was always dangerous. What he planned to do was, basically, he was going to make up five fast-moving columns and then try and slip them right past the redoubts. This meant that the columns would, for a time, be fired on from both the front and they would take what's called infilating fire which is essentially just fire to the flank or your unprotected side. It's extremely dangerous and deadly, and at this point, especially in warfare, it was something that you tried to avoid at all costs. In this case, the Swedes are going to welcome it because it's their way of of sneaking past these forts. To alleviate some of the pressure, Reinskull planned to have two columns on each side of the T's base, and then the fifth column, he planned to have it attack the redoubts of that stem uh, base. The hope was that this fifth column would pull fire and attention from the other columns moving by. To do all this, Reinskold had about sixteen to 19,000 men, and uh, the Poltava besieging force and the baggage guards were all left behind. So instead of using all his men, again, weirdly, Charles makes a mistake here, he leaves a bunch of soldiers on the table and doesn't use them. These men had, uh, these Swedish soldiers, they had been on campaign for two years. In many uh, cases, they had been in enemy territory that whole time. They were far, far from home and any assistance, and they had seen some pretty horrible stuff, I can only assume. They had to have been terrified and excited that this was almost over. Short on ammunition and powder, more importantly, most of the killing would fall to cold steel and sharp edges, which, by all accounts, the Swedes were well-suited for and really had no problem with because they really liked to close with the enemy for some heated hand-to-hand. At 4 a.m. on the 28th, as the sun crept up to the horizon, the Swedish 
army began to move. Hoping that the early hour would catch the Russians unawares and just waking, the Swedes moved as quick and quietly as possible. At first, the five columns moved at a good clip and went unnoticed, and then there was a warning shout from the lead Russian fort. A shot was fired which took off the heads of two Swedish soldiers, signaling that finally the Battle of Poltava had begun. The first casualties of the battle were scored by the Russians, but the early tactical success was on the Swedish side. The first redoubt fell, and then the second quickly behind. Because of the dire situation and lack of men, when these forts fell, few captives were taken by the Swedish. The third redoubt was more of an issue, though. Likely aware that little quarter had been given in the other redoubts, the Russian soldiers put up a spirited defense. General Karl Gustavus Rus found his first two attacks on the stronghold thrown back. Because his orders were unclear or he didn't fully understand them, Rus was actually trying to take the forts. What he should have been doing was just creating a distraction, lots of noise and energy, and then moving on to the next fortification. Instead, Rus threw his entire six battalions at the third redoubt. That meant 2,600 Swedish infantry were tied up while the other four columns of Swedes made it past the forts. Charles's plan seemed to be working. Once on the plain behind the redoubts, the Swedish infantry was rushed by a considerable force of Russian cavalry under Menshikov. Swooping in, though, came the Swedish blue-coated cavalry, and a writhing cavalry fight followed for the next hour. The two sides were evenly matched, but Peter was afraid that some kind of trick was coming and ordered his cavalry to pull back. As the Swedish infantry was forming up, there was a brief moment when it's believed a quick charge at the Russians might have won the day. General Lewenhaupt was actually preparing his 2,400 men to storm the Russian camp of 25,080 cannon. Readying his men for the assault, Lewenhaupt claimed he was ordered to halt. Now again we see that confusion and chaos in Charles's command here because both Charles and Renskold claimed not to have made any such order, but Lewenhaupt insisted he received one. It's possible that the order was never given and Lewenhaupt was just making an excuse for why he stopped, or that it was an old order from earlier in the battle that Lewenhaupt got at the wrong time. Whatever the truth, Lewenhaupt obeyed, halted, and around 6 a.m. formed up with the rest of the Swedish line on the plain. Renskold and Charles were consolidating and prepping the attack line when they realized that there was a hell of a lot fewer men than they had thought they'd have. It dawned on them that Ruse and his contingent, which con constituted a good portion of the entire army, was missing. Peter had noticed that the separated Swedes had been stuck at the forts, and seeing an opportunity to divide and conquer, Peter had flooded the area around Ruse with Russian infantry and cavalry. Ruse and his dwindling force was soon cut off and surrounded. Gallantly fighting and desperately trying to break out and reach their king, the Swedes were eventually trapped and slaughtered with only a small amount of captives taken. Charles's situation had gone from bleak to slightly better than impossible. 
By 9 a.m., the battle was in its final stages. After passing the forts and swatting away Menchikov and his horse, the Swedish plan seemed to have worked. Had Lewenhaupt continued to put pressure on Peter's army and struck at the camp, it's possible that Charles would have had himself an incredible victory that day. As it was, the Swedish situation was untenable. Renskold had only a couple of choices, and they all pretty much sucked. He could try and cut the Russian escape and supply uh, lines to the north, but uh, that would maybe force Peter out of position, but that's unlikely. He could hit the main camp with everything he had and hope the Russians deflated and collapsed like they had in the past, or he could retreat and expect to fight another day. The first choice exposed the Swedish lack of numbers. The second exposed the Swedish infantry to Russian artillery. And then the third, though seemingly the safest and most rational, was still a very delicate operation. Withdrawing in an orderly fashion in the face of a numerically superior army was never an easy idea. As we saw on the Instagram where we held a vote, um, the number one chosen decision was the withdrawal. And the withdrawal, though, uh, again, was not necessarily the easiest of the three. It definitely was probably the safest. Before Renskold could pick what he was going to do, though, and which choice he was going to make, Peter the Great made the choice for him. main Russian fort suddenly seethed with activity. The drawbridges were all dropped, and from them came a green-jacketed mass of men. Plunging into the early morning summer air was an army far different from the one seen at Narva. These soldiers knew their craft much better and had the discipline to hold the line in the face of Swedish ferocity. If the new duds didn't let on that the army of Peter was far different... The order and smooth deployment in formation certainly did. Quickly and in good fashion, Peter had a battle line with his infantry stoutly placed in the center, and on each wing was a large contingent of cavalry. Never going far without his cannon, Peter had his artillery set up to support and fire from behind the lines. Peter placed himself safely with his best units, the Novgorod Regiment and the Pribraz... Priobrzezinski guard. Renskold had to quickly redeploy from column to line formation to address the new circumstances. Charles told his stand-in commander Renskold to charge and break the cavalry wings first. Renskold told his king no. The infantry in the center had to be broken first. The fact that one of the most tenacious and independent generals in history at the most critical point in the most crucial battle of his career consented to have his subordinate plan his entire fight is crazy. That's, however, precisely what happened. The Swedish plan was now to weather the storm, then charge en the enemy center and send the Russians reeling, hopefully. Peter moved his line forward and gave the men closest some kind of speech. We don't know what was said, and the limitations of the day meant that the only 
people that heard it were the closest ones there. But it seems to have done the trick as the Russians were determined to end the day as the victors. With 30,000 men under him, Peter's line was over a mile in length. Facing this was the understrengthed, ragged, little Swedish line only 1,500 yards long. And this line was also very shallow in depth. Outflanked on both sides, whatever the Swedish plan was, they were going to have to do it quickly before the Russian juggernaut swallowed them whole. At 10 a.m., Renskold and Lewenhop had a moment where they put aside their feud and shook hands. Renskold ordered Lewenhop forward on the king's command, and so the Swedish drums rolled to life on Lewenhop's order. The mud-spattered blue and faded gold lines of infantry started moving forward. Soon, the solid shot from Russian cannons started falling from the sky. Peter's love of artillery showed its upside straight away. Cannonballs plowed lanes through the Swedish infantry. On impact, men were turned into clouds of red mist, not from any kind of explosion, but from the powerful impact of the shot itself. Limbs were plucked from bodies so quickly that the former owners didn't realize their leg or arm was gone until they fell over and bled out. This was just from the solid shot. Weathering the initial cannon fire, the Swedish line continued forward. Because the lines were so shallow, every time a cannonball struck down a couple men, the gap was quickly filled. The... The uh, line was continuous, but simultaneously, every time they had to fill in a gap, the line became shorter on the edges. Things also got worse. Once the Swedish reached 100 yards distance, the Russian gunners changed their ammo from solid shot to grape and scrap. A much shorter effective range, but a much wider kill zone made grape perfect for close-in killing. Swaths of Swedes fell as the fanning-out grapeshot punched huge shotgun-like holes. With a broader kill zone, the gaps being created in the line were now much more significant and required much more men than the Swedish had to fill them back up. But still the Swedes went on. Bracing themselves as if they were moving through a blizzard, the Swedish infantry marched on. At 50 yards, the two lines were within effective musket range and volleys were fired. Then the Swedes continued forward while taking even more Russian volleys and punishment. At 30 yards, the blue and gold infantry again stopped and fired a volley, but then they changed things up. Instead of slowly marching towards their deaths, now the Swedish sprinted at it like madmen, howling with fear and anger, possessed with a sense of Lutheran fatalism and berserker rage, the Swedish crashed into their tormentors with a fury. The speed and sheer power of the charge as it slammed home must have shocked the Russian front lines. The Swedish pikes crashed down onto the heads of men in the second and third lines of the Russians, cleaving them in half. Swords chopped, hacked, and sliced through flesh or were used to skewer men whichever space would allow. Muskets 
the most modern weapon of the day, were grabbed by the barrel and swung like the most ancient of all weapons, the deadly but straightforward club. The fairly new bayonet found its mark and punctured bellies up and down the Russian line, laying open the innards of the soldiers that were unfortunate to be pierced. Beyond the weapons, men were trampling, choking, smothering, smashing, and generally just doing horrible things to each other all over the battlefield. The Russian line shuddered and moved back a little. Renskold was now within a mile of Peter's camp, and at the closest point he would get to victory. From here, things happened quickly. The Swedish right wing was winning, but the left wing had stalled out. Lewenhaupt on the right needed some cavalry to support his success, but the speed of events overtook him. As the right side of the Swedish line moved forward and the left, li left side of the line fell behind, a gap was created between the two. Peter, with his emerald eyes, noticed the hole at once and pounced, filling it with Russian infantry. The Swedish line was now cut in half. Exhausted from the hours of fighting, marching, and general proximity to death, the Swedish soldiers lost it. They had only a few officers left. Most were dead or wounded. Their king, symbol, talisman, was invisible on his stretcher. No help or aid was coming. They knew the jig was up. The Swedish left wing, already having failed to make any ground, suddenly dissolved. Throwing their weapons away, the most feared infantry in Europe just wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. Lewenhop's much-needed cavalry support finally arrived, but the new Russian training set in and the Russians formed up into hollow squares. The Swedish cavalry could do nothing but circle them looking for non-existent gaps. While the Swedish cavalry was stymied, the Russian cavalry and Menshikov had swung round the entire battlefield and eventually came up on the rear end of the Swedish cavalry and charged them. Somehow, the Swedish cavalry turned to face them and made a countercharge and actually won, sending the Russian cavalry from the field. But it was way too little, way too late. The rout of Charles's army had begun. All over the Ukrainian field, small groups of Swedish soldiers were surrounded and either fought until they were slaughtered or threw down their weapons hoping for mercy. As men ran from the carnage and possible capture, Russian Cossacks and cavalry made a game of hunting them down and skewering them on lances and sabers. Charles himself scrambled to right the ship, screaming, quote, Swedes, 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 end quote. To rally the men, soon he realized the futility of things and his drabants began evacuating him on his litter. Acting as a human shield for their king, the drabants were being shot left and right, collapsing, either wounded or dead, on their king in his, his little traveling litter. Twenty-one out of twenty-four litter bearers were dead or wounded by day's end, and the litter itself had been shattered by a cannonball. As they scrambled for safety, the litter bearers threw the king on a horse, but the poor beast was immediately shot out from underneath him and killed. It's at this point we get the famous Hirta moment. Desperate, 
Charles seized one of his Drabants, Johann Hirta, still mounted. The king simply says, quote, Hirta, your horse, end quote. The loyal soldier doesn't question or refuse the order. He immediately handed the reins of his horse and his only means of escape and survival over to his king. Charles and his men clearly had an incredible bond. As the king rode away, he looked back to see a now wounded and bleeding Hirta leaning against a tree as the Russians closed in. Hirta would actually survive and even make it back to Sweden, where eventually Charles would reward him for his loyalty. The saying, quote, Hirta your horse, end quote, became extremely famous throughout the Scandinavian countries and throughout most of Europe, and it was, it was considered a very um, a telling moment in the battle. Poltava, though, was not just the birthplace of a famous line, it was also the birthplace of the Russian Empire. Of the 19,000 or 16,000 Swedish soldiers that fought at Poltava, 10,000 were left on the field. 6,900 were dead or wounded, and the rest were taken as prisoners. The Russians, having been safe inside redoubts or behind camp walls and never having to take artillery fire, suffered far less. Of Peter's 40,000 men, only uh, 1,350 were killed, and a further 3,300 men were wounded. The win was more than just a military victory, though. It was also a personal success for Peter. He could sense the change almost immediately. Russia, with one stroke, had survived and arrived on the world stage. And Peter had made it happen. Simon Sebag Montefort uh, has a book called uh, Written in History, and it gives us a little insight into what Poltava meant to Peter by sharing this letter he sent right after the battle. The letter reads, Matushka, good day. I declare to you that the all-merciful God has this day granted us an unprecedented victory over the enemy. In a word, the whole of the enemy's army is knocked on the head, about which you will hear from us. Peter, P.S., come here and congratulate us. So you can hear it in his writing how much or how excited Peter is to share this important moment in, in his life and in Russian history with his beloved wife. So you get a, a real sense of, of the gravity of the moment and, and the real true weight of Poltava. Moving his now ghostly army south down the Vorskla uh, River, Charles was in an impossible situation. With no baggage train or allies coming, there was no way for him to make or gather enough boats to get his remaining army across the river Nieper. Always the cool and calculated one, Charles decided to take the 1,000 strongest and best men he could and cross the river. Scared into madness or afraid of losing their king, a large number of Swedish soldiers threw themselves into the river and drowned trying to stay with Charles XII. On June 30th, 
Renskold and Leeuwenhaupt, still with the now-trapped army, both surrendered. The Swedish that were captured were sent into slave labor. And I believe, I'm pretty sure Ren, Renskold died soon after and Leeuwenhaupt made it back, or maybe vice versa. But only 4,000 Swedes ever returned to Sweden out of Russia. Still, they could have had it worse. As a way to show the other Cossack groups what rebellion got you, Peter, a cruel disciplinarian when he had to be, had Mezepa and Mezepa's uh, Cossacks tied to wagon wheels and then dismembered. The next few years saw Peter and Charles traveling in entirely opposite trajectories. After some touch-and-go moments with the Turks, Peter finally concluded peace with them, and his southern border was secured. This allowed him to turn back to the Baltics and expand further into the former Swedish territory. Peter had set the foundation of what would become one of the great world empires, and his power base was secure. In 1725, he died, leaving a legacy of innovation and curiosity, of humor and repression, powerful love and innate savagery. Peter is a true study in contradictions. Tender and loving to his wife, Peter personally ordered and watched as his son was tortured to death pure Russia. He wanted to be European. An old-world despot, he built a modern empire. In some insane foreshadowing to the Stalin era, long after Peter's death, the secret police were arresting peasants that spoke ill of him. Peter, for all of his faults, was the very embodiment of the Russian empire, and I cannot, um, I cannot suggest more enthusiastically that you pick up a copy of Robert K. Massey's biography. It is phenomenal. Charles was actually living in the Ottoman Turkish uh, Empire as Peter fought the Turks on the southern border of Russia. Charles had taken his thousand men and hunkered down in the heart of Turkey as an honored guest. And it was Charles who was actually the man behind the uh, hostilities between Turkey and Russia. He had urged the Turkish to take the fight to Russia. And the peace that they concluded with Peter was actually very favorable towards the Ottomans. And that actually pissed off Charles and he became extremely annoying and extremely unbearable. And eventually the Ottomans decided they didn't want to deal with it anymore. So they expelled him from the country. Again, in an echo of Richard III... The or Richard the Lionheart, you've got uh, the uh, Charles, once he's expelled from the Turks, he has to, on this long, winding, odyssey-like journey, make his way back to Sweden uh, while, you know, circumventing all sorts of traps and enemies and, and whatnot. And it's really interesting how much he re reminds me of Richard III, or at least resembles him. On his return journey, Charles found himself facing a, uh, a new formed coalition. So this time, his former allies had switched sides, and Charles was facing off with Denmark, Russia, Saxony, Prussia, Hanover, and Great Britain. It was an impossible war to win. While besieging a fortress in Norway in 1718, Charles again was at the front line inspecting the enemy. A shot tunneled through his skull, creating two massive craters in either side of his head. He died instantly. 
Some mystery remains as to whether the bullet came from enemy fire or, interestingly, if a fed-up Swedish soldier might have taken uh, ending the war into their own hands. Autopsies that have been done in the, uh, in the past, though, seem to suggest that it was, in fact, enemy fire, and I would bet that that was probably the case. However he died, though, the legacy of Charles the Young Lion is undeniable. As a military mind and pure tactician, he stands among a very small elite group in all of history. Seemingly a quiet, subdued man, he was interesting enough to have Voltaire write his biography. A peerless warrior with an unquenchable thirst for battle, at any odds, Charles did also seem to have a softer, more humane side. Love him or hate him, Charles XII, the young lion of Sweden, is undoubtedly one of Europe's most interesting kings and greatest generals. Without their warrior king, Sweden was doomed. The war went on for, for a few more years, but in 1721, the Great Northern War ended. The Treaty of Nystad gave Russia permanent access to the Baltic ports, and Peter was extremely excited. He had been lusting after access to the sea his whole life. This access to the world was just the beginning of Russia's expansion and constant efforts to uh, grow their borders. As much as Russia had gained, Sweden had lost. Gone forever as a dominant force in the European world, Sweden would become a country known not for power or military prowess, but for peace and social change. The real losers of the Great Northern War, though, as with every war, were the people. The carnage visited on civilians by both sides was horrific and brought up memories of, again, the Thirty Years' War. Swedish and Russian forces regularly dealt with guerrillas by using retaliation and reprisal killings. As with most armies of the time, both sides lived off the land, but since this, was, this war lasted for two decades, the area was trashed and used up in many places. In 1703, the town of Nyazawa had all its citizens, men, women, and children, hanged. The buildings were burned to the ground. The Swedes had been trying to send the guerrillas in the area a message. Even more destructive was the actions that the Russians had taken against the Finns. Over the years of Russian occupation, thousands of Finns were killed or taken away as slave labor. Vast areas of Finland were torched to discourage Swedish attacks into the new-formed Finnish wasteland. It would take Finland decades to recover from what they called the, quote, greater wrath, end quote. Poltava became a go-to battle for the poets as well. Charles and Mezepa were immortalized by Lord Byron. Pushkin, the national poet of Russia, almost single-handedly built the mythology of Peter the Great. In the 20th century, the legacy and memory of that June day lived on in Russia. While fending off a different invader in the Great Patriotic War, propagandists played up Poltava. Tanks, planes, and ships were all named after Peter's great victory. The line of Poltava didn't end there either. 
During the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s, one of the ships believed to be supplying missiles to Cuba was named Poltava. The story of Poltava and the world after the battle is well established. But what if, what if the Turks had teamed up with Sweden? Russia, then caught between the two powerful invasion pincers, would be in a tight spot. If Peter was killed and Sweden and the Ottoman conquerors uh, held large parts of Russia, would the Romanovs have stayed in power? And what would a Romanov-less world look like? Sweden, even with a victory, was never likely to be a power broker for very long. But what if it had consolidated with the, uh, the Baltic and Scandinavian countries to form a kind of UK-like entity? The history of Germany and the rise of Prussia would have been very different if there was a large, powerful, central, uh, uh, centralized governing body somewhere north of them. It seems likely that there would have been contact between Prussia and this uh, Scandinavian state that would have uh, drastically affected the, the world as we know it. Okay, guys, that is the Battle of Poltava. Thanks for sticking along with me. I know it's a big one, but uh, it's been about 23, 24 days since I last posted an episode, and I wanted to make it count for you so you've got a little something to listen to until the next time we get together. So the sources I used were pretty... Um, there was a few of them. I used Edward Creasy's uh, 15 Decisive Battles book, uh, the updated version. I used um, uh, Robert Massey's incredibly immersive uh, bio on Peter, and I used a couple of others, JFC Fuller. Uh, I used, uh, yeah, a couple of others. Um, I will list those on the website if you want to see all of them. As always, any issues, any corrections, comments, problems, just send me a message on either Facebook, at the email, whichever is easiest for you, uh, and I will address them as they come. Check out the Instagram, the Facebook. Also, again, as always, rate, review, subscribe, and please share with a friend. If you go ahead and put up a review in the next couple of days, I will give you a shout-out in the next episode. As for Patreon, if you can, click on the Patreon button and go ahead and support us on Patreon. It's, uh, we've got a couple of different tiers. You have a dollar, you have $5, and then at the $10 level, you'll start to get access to our uh, special episodes, which will be little bios and uh, cross-sections of weapons and whatnot. At the $5, we're going to start doing the theory cast for real. So... Even if it's only 10 or 15 minutes, I'm going to sit down once a week and talk about what the uh, world would look like in my imagination if the battle had been different. If you have the time and the energy, send me your theories and I will include them in that little, uh, that little extra show. So if you can, check out the Patreon for the theory cast and for other swag and whatnot. Um, again, like I just said, we're going to get more into the theory stuff. That's the fun stuff. I love that. That's interesting and it's exciting. And uh, I want to get more into that. So be prepared to hear some more wonky, weird stuff at the end of episodes. 
Um, again, thanks to Melhax for another excellent episode piece of artwork. It's awesome. I think it's pretty badass. If you guys want it, if you want any like shirts or hats in this thing, just email me and we can figure out what a decent price would be. Uh, you know, I'll just cover the cost and shipping and you know maybe throw 10 bucks on it or whatever just to to make it worth everybody's while but uh, i'd be more than happy to make some of these things happen for people all right thank you again for listening i'm your host cullen next up we are going to the fetid humid beautiful hellish deadly island of guadalcanal <laughs>